You're listening to Switched On Australia, the podcast that tracks the opportunities and challenges of electrifying everything, everywhere. Switched On is brought to you by the publishers of Renew Economy, Australia's best informed, most read website focusing on the green energy transition and is supported by Boundless Earth, using philanthropy, investment and direct advocacy to help Australia become a global force in a decarbonised world. Hello and welcome to another Switched On podcast. Hi, Man Delaney. Thanks for joining me. We've been talking a lot about homes and buildings recently on the podcast and what individuals and communities can do to electrify. But today we're going to talk about transport. Transport accounts for about a fifth of our carbon emissions, so electrifying it all is a massive job. And electrifying our transport isn't just about swapping out our internal combustion cars for electric versions. My guest today reckons that if we just do that, we'll miss a massive opportunity to make our cities and our towns much more livable. Peter Newman is the Professor of Sustainability at Curtin University in Western Australia. He's been part of the transport team on the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change for 12 years now, and for the last five, he's been the Transport and Cities lead author for the IPCC. As you'll hear, Professor Newman is a big thinker about transport. He can talk about electric vehicles as appliances or as remarkable objects, I suppose, how they can integrate with our electricity grid to help power it, but also how electric vehicles can be integrated into urban design to help us create better, more healthy cities. It's a big vision and a truly hopeful one. I started my discussion with Peter Newman, asking him to explain why the electrification of transport is so important. We are going through a period of history where we are finally getting rid of oil. In the 1972-3 period, I was studying with Paul Ehrlich at uh, Stanford University when the first oil crisis hit and that city, San Francisco, fell apart. It was extraordinary to watch, and I've ever since been thinking we cannot continue to build any kind of civilization around oil. It has to go, and it's been a hard struggle and still is. In fact, it's the most difficult part of the getting rid of fossil fuels agenda. But finally, we have a decent technology Uh, electric vehicles of all kinds that can remove oil off this planet and forever. And we need to get into this quickly. So, so Peter, you've been lead author for Transport on the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Tell me what you've seen happening in the last 12 years since you've been associated with the IPCC. Yeah, look, the impression the general public has of the IPCC is that we are the doomsdayers who are constantly saying we're all stuffed uh, and and really we desperately got to start moving things. And the reality is that in that 12-year period, the world did start moving and we are now in a period of dramatic change that we didn't really predict I think we were in a mindset and therefore in the various ways of predicting the future, including modelling, that suggested it was going to be very, very hard and very slow 
and we had to get going because it, 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 the world doesn't change quickly. Uh, the reality is that the solar revolution came on us very quickly, associated with batteries and therefore with electric vehicles. And the data that came out in the 2022 climate change mitigation report that I worked on for five years um, had these graphs in them showing the dramatic decline. But at the same time, we were, we were still in the lingo of saying, oh, you know, unless we move dramatically now, nothing, uh, nothing will change. Uh, the reality is it was changing. The price of these things had dropped to such an extent that solar and wind power was now the cheapest the world has ever seen. And all the other factors were lining up. So we had to just get our, our societies, our cities, our institutions, our governments to line up with this and remove the barriers to these changes. And that process is still really, I think, moving into the mindset, the emotional uh, approach to the world, the spiritual approach to the world that generates hope. I've always felt that hope brings about change far more than fear or despair uh, and that the kind of changes we need now really need us to switch onto the hope agenda and get the young people of the world committed to saying, yes, we can do this. Yes, that's fantastic. Uh, so the, the, the solar revolution and um, the, the technology of batteries, you think, is now going to revolutionise our transport? Yes, and everything else. So that's why we talk about electrifying everything, because that's the way in to these new technologies. We can base everything around solar and batteries. Solar and wind uh, are always connected. Um, and that process is working its way through every aspect, every part of our cities, because they're different parts of cities with different solutions. Uh, it's working its way through industries and the smaller ones first, but the big ones eventually are going to totally electrify and have processes that will enable us to to be tapped into the sun and and agriculture so all of these are are changing the leaders are out there showing that it's actually cheaper and easier than we thought and the processes of change are setting in but at the same time we're dealing with the laggards particularly the oil companies mm. who do not want to change and and they are actually getting in the way and we are dealing with this issue in Western Australia with the uh, massive expansion of the Northwest Shelf Project, which uh, is a very typical example around the world of how we cannot afford to make those sort of commitments. Yes, I love the hope that you're projecting, Peter. Uh, but Australia is a bit slow when it comes to the electrification of our transport systems. What do you think accounts for that? Um, well, we have been slow. Um, and that 10-year period with the Morrison government uh, was clearly getting in the way of any change. 
talking about a gas-led recovery through COVID without seeing that it was already recovering very quickly, thank you very much, yes. due to solar. Um, and the the whole processes of change um, were, were not helped with that period. But the reality is it's not just government that changes the world. Um, and, and I say that after working with all the nation states in the IPCC process because once the Paris Agreement was set in place, um, we realised that the the changes were coming as much from the world of finance, business and industry, and from ordinary households and small businesses who were getting on and doing this change much quicker than anything governments were trying to help us with. Yes. Um, we, we actually got on with the job. Extraordinary growth in solar in, in Perth, for example, where where I am, but across Australia, we are a world leader in rooftop solar. And the processes of how that happened, how it, it was developed through the Australian R&D system at University of New South Wales, taken to China to mass produce it all with not a lot of Australian help. And then once it came down in price, importing that, setting up the businesses, the small businesses that enabled us to quickly apply it to our rooftops without permitting or financing problems. You still can't do that in America. It takes months to get solar on a rooftop. You've got to get a permit. You've got to get finance organised yourself. All of that's fixed for us. You can do it in 24 hours. That's the kind of process we did well. And that means it's now half the price of it is in the US. So you've got to get massive subsidies with the Biden IRA Act to sort of get things going. Well, we were there on a number of important things. And that was happening at the same time as the appalling government processes that were trying to stop them. Absolutely. The individuals have been so crucial. Individual households have been so crucial to the solar revolution. We are kicking coal out of our grid system, so to speak. So, but when it comes to transport, it's not just the individuals adopting electric cars, is it? I mean, there's a whole lot more involved in terms of the electrification of our transport system. Yes, and there are no places in the world that have <clears throat> fully solved that problem. Uh, you know, everyone points to Norway, but um, and they've got now 60% electrification of their vehicle fleets, um, but uh, there's still enormous um, chaos around the refuelling systems. There's not enough recharging uh, spots available within the cities, uh, and 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 that sort of process is continuing uh, in in most cities in the world. Most places are putting in more electric vehicles than than the infrastructure can cope with. Certainly in Australia, that's the case. Yes, and we we need to get going very quickly on how to to fix that. And it's very interesting to me that the oil companies could fix this overnight virtually by just putting lots of electric recharge facilities into every one of their service stations right through the country. 
because every country town has a service station, but you'd think that would be the obvious place for a recharge site. But you, you usually have to go and find some person or farmer who happens to have a, a recharge facility and you can get into it or a, a local government that's got one in their depot. Uh, it, it's, it's really poor stuff. So the, the oil companies have not taken this transition seriously. They want to hang on as long as possible, sell the last drop of oil until they drop. Well, they're going to collapse. That is the problem that they face. And it's not going to be pretty. And governments will be forced to make incredible questions as to whether they subsidise the transition then. They must get moving on this transition and help with it. They must be part of the solution, not part of the problem. How do, how do we make them part of the of the solution, though, Peter? How do we force them? I mean, as you, you know, that they have been so recalcitrant and resistant for so long. What's going to make that change? Well, you can do all kinds of things about carbon pricing and stuff like this to make it harder and harder. But that does have equity implications. Uh, it, you know, the, the poor will suffer most if you double the price of petrol or something and take a, a big whack of, of carbon tax off it and, and use that to make a, a parallel series of uh, recharge facilities or something like that. But it, 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 it's not any more favoured anywhere in the world to do that. You just have to work with these companies. And, and the companies, however, are getting lots of support from governments through the gas industry as much as anything. But oil and gas are, you know, firmly uh, fitted at the, at the hip. They are one and the same thing. And so those companies like Chevron and Shell and, and so on, they have to make their own commitments and that comes down to the shareholders and all of the processes that lead to them getting finance and increasingly that is the problem that they face they will not get financed unless they get serious mm. about transition we have had an interesting experience in western australia the premier of our state was rung up by the Rijksbank, the Dutch bank, saying at one point we had two big financial grants which they were going to have to call in because we were not doing enough on net zero. The Premier then called up various public servants, one of whom I know very well, and this has become public knowledge, that um, and said, what the heck is net zero about? And really. He said, he, and this public servant who had been working in the development industry and we had done a lot of work, for example, WGV, White Gum Valley is a, an urban development that uh, 10 years ago was a net zero product uh, and the development WA pro, uh, processes had enabled it. Um, we did research with it and had lots of um, innovative things happening there. It's been incredibly successful in the terms of its sales and popularity. It's a medium density development in a suburb that didn't like density mm. and they love it now because of all this benefit and sustainability and lots of green spaces and so on as well. 
And so he said, look, Premier, net zero is the next agenda. You have to do it. But it's great because it is better. It's cheaper and we can do it and show you how to do it. So within two weeks, they had changed their policies and announced a net zero program. And every agency is now having to desperately catch up and show how you do net zero. Now, that's the kind of change that is that is brought in through the world of finance. And they are doing that around the world. There's now $88 trillion available for only net zero projects. That's about half of the world's finance. Now, the other half is still available for those recalcitrants who want to get there and and, and put, put the... Uh, the lights out on our future um, and the, the reality is that they are going to lose out because the whole of that finance industry will soon be only net zero and then those companies are going to collapse so we have to get ready for that as well and the governments therefore mustn't be associated with gas and oil industries to any degree they must stand back and say please change. Yes. The world is changing and you have to be part of it. Yes. You've raised the issue of equity, which is super important when it comes to this energy transition. You know, if we just look at electric vehicles, a lot of people still can't afford electric vehicles. Talk to me a little bit about public transport options when it comes to the electrification of our transport. What, what is needed there? Yeah, the interesting thing around the world is to see that the take-up of electric vehicles has mostly been in two- and three-wheelers in China and India, which are now over 40% of the entire stock is now electric. If you go to China, every motorbike, every electric, uh, every uh, treadley, uh, as well as the the three wheelers, the you know the rickshaws and stuff, that those are all electric now, and they work very much better. Um, electric buses are now very dominant right through China and India, and the processes of change are now catching up in Europe and America and Australia. We're getting our electric buses; they work better. They are clearly a better technology. Um, but the interesting thing for me is that five years ago, we discovered what we've called a trackless tram, which is a way of building a light rail system using smart technologies that enable uh, the best technologies from high speed rail in terms of how they steer, how they're autonomous and how they enable a very steady ride quality to be transferred into a bus. And this bus is only a bus because it has rubber wheels. Everything else in it is electric and smart and rail-like. And I discovered this along with uh, some of my researchers who had just, uh, found an option that uh, they hadn't heard of before when trying to see how to do light rail. Uh, it was actually starting in Sydney along Parramatta Road when it was discovered. And that was being done because it just was too expensive and too disruptive to do another George Street, which <laughs> took five years to, you know, and completely destroyed the economy along that street. 
the the um, whole process uh, of implementing uh, change has to be part of any decision now on technology. So I went to China. I sat in on this uh, trackless tram that they were running and I uh, was convinced that this is the next what is called mid-tier transit. It's not a bus. It's not a train. It's, it's what happens along main roads connecting our city up and enabling proper networks so that you can get anywhere in a city without a car. That is the missing link. And we have been pushing that ever since. Uh, three weeks ago, I went to China to look at our trackless tram that is being built and will be in Perth in on early October. And it will be available for people to see and ride in late October. We're hoping large numbers of people will come from around the world and uh, and across Australia to see and talk about and understand this new technology. It is being certified for use here as the first Western um, country or cities uh, in the world to take on these this new technology. And it's I think a breakthrough, it will enable electrification of our transport system to have this missing link. Uh, it will provide options, not just equity options. They are better for everyone. The businesses in the cities will benefit because there will be new ways that people will come in without cars. We can't make cities built around a car, even if they're electric. Mm. We will ruin our cities. We have to have places that are people-oriented, walkable, lots of um, electric bikes and electric micro-mobility in general. But the, the public transport system has got to be better than the private transport system, if you like. And that process needs to be occurring at the same time as this electrification. And do you think that we have just put way too much focus on individual electric cars that, and, and swapping out our internal combustion vehicles for our electric models? Do you think there's been too much focus on, that, the, on the individual householder when it comes to transport? Well, that's been the case basically since the Second World War. It, it's, not, it's not part of our uh, longer term history. We were a tram-based uh, society for most of the first half of the 20th century, and uh, those trams worked very well. So this is a 21st century tram that can enable us to balance the way in which we have developed our cities and regions so that we can have real options. The problem is not the car or the automobile, as I've said it in all the literature we've written, it is automobile dependence. We should not have to depend on a car for our daily and local or regional transport needs. It is something we can do, but don't need to do. Mm. And that if we build our cities differently, we will have a much better city. And that is what we now have in most Asian cities and in most European cities. Australian-American cities are the most automobile dependent. 
all of our work has been showing that and that saying that that is likely to be our problem into the future. It is our Achilles heel um, because the cities will never be as good uh, as the options where you can have better public transport. We don't do too badly. We're better at it than America, but we're not as good at it as the Asian and European cities. And we can learn from them and we can get better at it at the same time as taking on board all of this new technology. Mm. And, uh, I mean, just to drill down a little bit on that, because you've written a lot about the dysfunction of our cities and what they don't deliver us and how they struggle to cope with traffic demands of the 21st century. Uh, I mean, talk to me how about how electrification and, and particularly this mid-tier form of electric trackless trams can make our cities more livable. Well, what we've been doing across Australian cities, quietly I should say, but for those who are really into it, they would have picked up there's been a lot of activity with local governments. See, local governments are responsible for housing and urban development processes, and they've become very scared about medium density developments. And often filling in backyards has been a problem because you knock down a lot of trees and you get more traffic and there's no other benefit to the community. So we've developed a model which we've talked through with all these local governments and they like it, but it's not yet adopted more broadly through state governments. We call it greening the grey fields and it was done in, in association with uh, Peter Newton and Steve Glacken at Swinburne University. Yes. And this is a book, it's a free book that's available through Routledge, um, Greening the Grey Fields. It's very interesting, Peter. I've read part of it. Oh, good. And, and it sets up this model where you say you, you, you bring in a, a trackless tram down a corridor and in the process of getting that trackless tram, you work with the community, with the local government and with developers to show where you can develop around stations along that corridor. And you work with them to get a whole lot of beneficial outcomes in terms of medium density development <clears throat> that is able to bring together that community, provide the things they need there. Maybe there's some aged housing needs. Maybe there's some open space needs. Maybe there's um, a recharge facility for all the local uh, electric vehicles that will be provided there. Certainly there'll be open space requirements. All of that needs to be designed as part of the process of getting that um, trackless tram into that corridor. And the corridor can then be something that spreads across the rest of the city. The microgrids that are set up around each station can, can then expand out into the surrounding suburbs and bring in community-based storage and recharge facilities. All of that can happen if you start to look at a net zero corridor with a trackless tram driving it. And that process needs to be managed through the state government system. Federal governments can, can push it as well uh, with urban policies and funding to get demonstrations up. All of that 
can transform our cities at the same time as going electric and being based on sunshine rather than oil, coal and gas. It's a transition that is entirely feasible for us to show the rest of the world how to do it and to be a genuine leader, but to do something that is very Australian oriented. It will help make our cities better, but they will still be the good places where we like to live and work. Mm. The electrification of transport is anticipated to increase the demand for electricity from the grid. Do we know what impact the the growth of EVs will, will have? Um, not really, because this is something we study and we have a, a big grant with the uh, uh, CRC for Reliable, Affordable, Clean Energy, RACE. Um, we've got a grant that will be working with the electric vehicle side of things, another one on net zero precincts and net zero corridors. So we are going to be demonstrating this in a number of places across Australia in the next two to three years. And that process, I think, should be able to provide better answers because the, the problem is this, the, the grid now is very dumb. <laughs> it, is, it is fixed and it has what are called overlap envelopes that are not dynamic. This is a term I've only just d discovered, but it is essentially that they have to provide power for the, the lowest common denominator, the problem of how much demand can be reached um, a bit before the system collapses. So there's always about 50% more power being provided than is needed. And that power is wasted. So you, you have an opportunity now in this transition to create dynamic overlap envelopes, as they're called, and we are trialling them across Australia to show how the smart systems associated with batteries, solar, wind, uh, as they all come in at different points and how the appliances, how the industries can all participate in this and the electric vehicles can be recharged at points where it actually helps the whole grid to be smart. So it follows the demand curve rather than having this broad, dumb system that is just quite simply wasteful. And so a dynamic and smart system is what we're, we're moving into. Uh, it's n there's no manual on it. It's, uh, it's yet to have been done. Uh, and we're, as much as anything, leaders in this because we've got so much more solar in the system. And it's pushing these envelopes all the time into new ways of thinking. And, uh, of course, Renew Economy has, has, has highlighted some of the extraordinary days when in Western Australia we have 80 to 90 percent of the grid being provided by our excess solar from our rooftops. This is uh, something that the utilities did not anticipate uh, and I'd have to say the IPCC did not see this happening so quickly. Right. But it's a fantastic period of history to think that we're on the edge of creating a whole new grid a whole new set of, of industries, a whole new 
um, approach to how we manage our households and businesses. Uh, everything is, is changing, but it's for the better and we have to do it. Otherwise, the bushfires are going to take over and burn our cities like they did in Hawaii. Otherwise, the, the uh, world will not be able to start cooling. Global cooling will start as soon as we hit net zero. That is very clear in all the modelling and all the science. And that will not kick in until we've rapidly gone through this change. And we've talked about it net zero by 2050, but we can do that well before that. We can be halfway there by 2030, and we could then rapidly in the 2030s bring it down. So the changes are likely to, to come quickly, but as uh, I've written about, it's like going over a waterfall now. We have been going slowly down the climate change river. We can see the river beyond the net zero river. It's beautiful and calm and, and everything's working. But at the moment, we're going over the waterfall down to that. It's so chaotic, risky, but very exciting as well. <laughs> we reckon... We, we will live through it and, and we'll be able to talk about it at the end and say, wasn't that amazing? I don't know if I want to go over this waterfall, Peter. Yeah, well, neither do I, but we have to and we're in it. We're going over it and every day we're learning something more about it. But the utilities and the all of the businesses and industries that have to make these changes, they're all learning very rapidly and you, you find that the younger ones in there uh, are learning how to swim and get out of the, the whirlpools and the, the problems quickly. Uh, but the uh, older ones are, are struggling. And, and that's okay. That's, that's, the, that's life. But it is, in fact, a very exciting time. Yeah, can I just move from waterfalls, just to, yeah. to go back specifically to, I suppose, l looking at EVs as a, not just a mode of transport, I mean, is what you're talking about. It's, it's, it's looking at how we need to think of them, I suppose, potentially as millions of big mobile batteries, batteries on wheels. Mm. How can the integration of electric vehicles with the electricity grid and energy storage accelerate the decarbonisation of Australia's road transport sector, for instance? Well, the um, processes are going to be happening <clears throat> at all kinds of levels. I was on the ACT uh, advisory committee when they were electri electrifying their bus fleet and th what they discovered is they needed a new depot and when they looked at it and and, and saw the potential to cover that with PVs and have batteries there and enable the recharge to be happening all day and all night, that they had something to offer the utility. And the utility, when they looked at it, said, this is exactly what we need. We need that kind of support uh, in the grid to enable us to have the, the backup that uh, you can provide. So that depot is being built. It is going to be part of the grid system and it will pay money to the ACT government. So that's the kind of thing we need to be doing in our every business. Um, you, when, whenever I fly over cities, uh, I see rooftops below me 
that are empty of PVs and they are mostly warehouses and big businesses that have massive amounts of roof space. They need to see this is an incredible investment opportunity. They can be part of this solution to enabling the grid to work. And every one of their vehicles in the future are going to be needing a place to recharge. So set up their own system with a battery and PVs and then talk to the utility about how the excess can be part of what they need to provide uh, and and have a, a need for in the system. It will all be part of the dynamic envelope that we are creating. And, and that is going to help every fleet, every uh, every household, every business, and, and the big industries that have big needs for energy have their own issues to deal with as they change towards a better system. Uh, and the hydrogen that they're going to require is definitely going to be a bigger issue in terms of storage and, and, and the, the ability to uh, help the grid. But in our cities, mostly we, we don't have that issue. It is all about getting on with the technologies that we now have. Uh, one of the technologies, though, that we don't have, well, not in, uh, hasn't been rolled out at a mass level, is bi-directional charging. Tell me, does a, does a lot of what you're envisaging depend on bi-directional charging, the, the capacity for the electric vehicles to feed back to the grid, to feed into the home? Well, it it, um, it can, uh, but it can be done through battery systems as well. You know, recharging your own batteries or localized batteries, and and that is then tied into the grid in some way, so that it's it's not every individual um, uh, car that is tied into the grid and 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 has to have a, their own little contract to work out how that how that is is recharged in a way that helps the grid um there there are um businesses um that are setting up to enable that whole process and and they tend to work best if you've got a a, a precinct of of people or businesses that can be part of a, a, a system um so we we may not need every vehicle to be linked into the grid in that way uh, and there may be huge requirements to not use batteries for the grid um, but certainly there will be many uh, services like the the buses and so on that that need to be part of this change and and how they fit into depots the trucks the the fleets they all are going to have bigger contracts that can be offered to you to the utilities to enable the uh, the grids to adapt and have these smart systems. Um, so I don't know that we start with the individual household. If we could start with those bigger precinct scale operations, we are likely to be able to have very good trials that can help us see what is best for the grid. Are, are there any uh, transport are, are there any transport vehicles that you don't think can be electrified? Not yet. Um, we were very wary about 
the the heavy trucks and big diesel trains side of things in the IPCC. But the more we looked at it and the more we talked to the industry people like Toyota that were doing the hydrogen fuel cells for these services, uh, we realised it was never going to be a real option to make them hydrogen based because it was going to be three or four times more expensive. Uh, and they, the engineers admitted this. They admitted it was also a highly political thing that was essentially being pushed by the gas industry, not by science and engineering. And that um, the, the reality is that hydrogen distribution was never going to be able to provide a safe and easy source of of hydrogen for those vehicles. And that process, I think, is being abandoned um, as, as big trains and big trucks are now being fitted out quite cheaply and easily uh, because they usually are using uh, electric engines already. They're diesel electric, but the, you just need to replace the diesel system with a battery. And that's not that hard to do. In, the, in engineering terms. Um, so they're now coming in, all the big mining companies in Western Australia are going for their ore trucks and their ore trains uh, to be uh, battery electric rather than hydrogen. And that process is underway. So I think the, the, um, that issue is, is put aside um, and we, we are finding, of course, that the uh, dramatic increase uh, in electric vehicles happening around the world is happening in every vehicle. So the ones that were the laggards and said, oh, no, we won't be heading down this track, they're, they're losing out very quickly. Yes, definitely. What about at the other scale of things, the micro-mobility, the scooters, the, the three-wheelers, as you said, the last, what they call the last mile transport? What role do you see that playing in the future, the, the, the cities of the future? Yeah, and the, the, the big scale and the small scale um, are open to some significant uh, interventions, I think. The big scale is, is of course, aviation and shipping. They won't be electric. Uh, they, they won't be uh, able to take, uh, they're that, that, just too much uh, to, for the battery spaces that would be needed. Um, so they will need new kinds of hydrogen-based fuels made for them. Um, and that, that's, there's lots of trials happening. But if you go to the smaller scale, the um, the scooters, the um, two wheelers, the, uh, the motorbikes, the, um, the the skateboards, the e wheels, you know, the extraordinary numbers of micro mobility happening. Um, they are incredible systems to provide faster transport at a micro level, um, and they are taking off. So we aren't ready for them in our cities. Our cities need to provide space for them, safe space. Uh, we are having accidents and it, it's, uh, they're scary. Mm. If you're out having a pleasant walk and one of these things goes past, you, you just can't believe how fast they're going. 
that that reality is is not easily uh, managed by just saying, well, they've got to be slowed down. The reality is transport is about getting somewhere quickly. You do not want to waste time. And they are providing us with the opportunity to do the local um, links that can take you to the train station quickly and enable you to then get across the whole city and carrying while carrying your little device with you and getting out the other end mm. and going where you need to. And that will increase. It is the sort of thing we're going to have to make possible with the sort of storage, recharge and safe spaces for it to occur. Uh, that is still a challenge anywhere. There are cities like Barcelona filled with these electric scooters and the, it, it, it is ruining the walkability of, of these gorgeous streets. So uh, it's not solved, but it's not beyond us, is it? We can solve that one. And I think we need to welcome it because it is part of the broader solution that we will be electrifying everything and electrified transport will have that as its base right the way through to the, the every kind of vehicle, including the trackless trams that will be able to carry these devices with them, <laughs> their owners on them and enable them to get around the city without needing any kind of fossil fuel, be running off sunshine, the whole thing, and enable our cities to be far better places. On that very hopeful note, we all need some hope. Peter Newman, thank you very much for joining the Switched On podcast today. Good. Thank you very much. I really appreciate that chance. I think you did it beautifully and it, 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 was, it was fun. So thanks. And Peter Newman is a Professor of Sustainability at Curtin University and Transport Lead for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. I should also add that he has an Order of Australia for services to sustainable transport and urban design. And I'll see if I can get Peter back on the podcast later in the year when the trackless tram is up and running in Perth. He may also have some results from the Race for 2030 projects that uh, he's been working on by then. That's a wrap on today's Switched On podcast. Next time I'll have that two-part series on smart homes I promised a couple of weeks ago and two very different perspectives on how home energy maintenance systems might work. I'm Anne Delaney. Till then, keep electrifying. <laughs>